The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. <clears throat> so this is a test. Who got the HTTC? <laughs> so uh, it's really nice to be here with all of you this morning. It's a beautiful day. I'm celebrating my birthday this weekend, so it's a nice weekend for me. I'm 39. <laughs> so, uh, so there's so many of you here today, and I know some of you, but I don't know all of you, obviously. Are there people here who are uh, new meditators or new to practice, a little bit newer? Yeah, okay. So um, what I wanted to talk about today was um, how, how to use our practice. Um, not necessarily how to practice, but how to use our practice in a very uh, sort of 55,000-foot overview um, so that uh, we can just... Uh, get an opportunity to uh, reflect on how we practice and uh, why we practice and how to use practice skillfully. So uh, I want to begin with some of the ways that we practice, some of the practices that we cultivate. And um, uh, in Buddhism, there's, there's certain core, core practices that are just given um, in the very beginning, and then our practice is founded on these. These are the foundations of our practice. So the first one is uh, keeping the precepts, um, practicing uh, integrity, and uh, uh, an old-fashioned word that's used is virtue. So maybe it's not such an old-fashioned word, but keeping the precepts. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the five main precepts. The, the first is uh, not non-harming or not taking the life of other beings, whether they're human beings or other kinds of beings, not killing, um, not stealing, um, so that we can have a sense of trust for ourselves and for one another, um, not misusing our sex, uh, our sexuality in ways that are harmful to ourselves or to other people, not to misuse our speech, to lie, to gossip, to um, you know, be, be careless with our speech, and then not to uh, overindulge with intoxicants that can sort of confuse the mind, and, and then we don't know that we're breaking the first four precepts. And these precepts are basically uh, training guidelines. They're not commandments. It's not like if we, if we sort of falter, we're bad people. It's simply that if we pay attention to these precepts, they give us a solid foundation so that our minds can be free from the kinds of disturbances that make it impossible for us to see what's going on. So in the cultivation of mindfulness and clear comprehension, which is the second uh, way that we practice, uh, we learn to um, see what's going on in the mind. 
we learn to recognize and meet things that are uh, not only coming to us from the outside, but arising within us. So we learn to recognize thoughts and emotions and sensations and mind states and, and, and those kinds of things. So we keep the precepts. We develop mindfulness and clear comprehension. In the process, we develop what's called, referred to as samadhi, but it's basically training the mind to calm down and be stable and and um, so that there's a sense of, of uh, concentration. And, and in this more stable uh, state of mind, we're able to see things much more clearly. And when that happens, we're able to cultivate uh, uh, insights and wisdom. And uh, at the same time that we do that, we learn how to touch this beautiful quality of compassion and um, bring it uh, uh, to life in our own lived experience, in our own day-to-day experience. However, um, uh, the purpose of practice is not any of those things. Those are simply the methods of practice. The purpose of practice is what a lot of teachers refer to as um, the sure heart's release. It's a kind of relinquishment that comes about when we're able to um, sort of see through the things that obscure our ability to be at peace. So just in a very practical, pragmatic way, if we are um, sort of... uh, if we're sort of troubled with with some relationship, some, we have some difficulty at work or with a friend or with a partner or something, and we find ourselves in a, in a state of, of just ruminating over this over and over and over again, um, you know, <clears throat> we, we learn to see what's happening so that we can access this quality of forgiveness Maybe the other person or the the situation doesn't deserve forgiveness, but we deserve to be free from the kind of uh, difficulty that we impose on ourselves. And one thing that we learn when we practice, one thing that I learned, and it took years, so I'm a slow learner, so I'm going to make it easy for you, is that um, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're believing... before it ever touches another person, we experience it. We're the immediate and direct recipients of whatever it is we're thinking our feelings. So if we're thinking thoughts of loving kindness before anyone else is ever affected by that expression, we are bathed in loving kindness. If we're filled with vitriol and anger before we ever utter a single word, we're stung by the anger. So we're the immediate and direct recipients of whatever it is that we're, we're experiencing. So this whole idea of practice is to learn to recognize what's going on, and the relinquishment is the relinquishment of holding on to what might be called wrong view or 
holding on to the things that cause us to suffer. So knowing that the purpose of practice is different from the practices, that doesn't mean that we don't need to practice, that we don't need to use these practices. So we don't abandon the practices of the precepts. We don't abandon the the effort to cultivate mindfulness. We don't abandon the effort to cultivate samadhi or insight wisdom. But we recognize that these things are tools that we use in the process of cultivating a, a real practice, a practice that actually serves us in a day-to-day practical way. And um, the practice that we do when we come together and we sit and we meditate is a beautiful practice. It's a formal practice. But when we get up from our cushion and we go over to Pete's and have uh, share a coffee with a friend, that's also practice. And and what we, what we discover in our meditation on the cushion is relevant when we're not on the cushion. And what happens when we're not on the cushion becomes relevant when we are on the cushion because we can begin to see what's going on and learn from our experience. And so um, we use, make use of these tools in order to realize and directly experience this quality of relinquishment. And this quality is this quality of letting go and release. So I've had many teachers say, just let go, just let go, just let go. And that's a wonderful teaching. And I used to be so frustrated. I would say, if I knew how to let go, (laughs) do you think I would hold on? (laughs) How do you let go? So, um, so letting go. <laughs> and what is it that we're letting go of? What we're letting go of what creates suffering and contraction and discontentment and stress in our lives. So <laughs> I have a couple of questions. The first is, how do we learn to make use of these practice tools in, for the purpose of letting go? And how do we come to recognize and acknowledge the limitations of any of these tools when we're using them? And then when we do that, how do we learn to use these things skillfully? How do we learn to use these practices skillfully? So there's different aspects of practice and and there's different and these different practices are appropriate for working with accomplishing certain things at certain times. And, and we need to understand that with each practice, we have to, if we use it in the context of when it's appropriate, it will serve us. And if we try to use it at a time when it's not appropriate, it's not going to serve us in the same way. So we, we need to learn how to apply these practices to to actually serve, serve us directly. So one way that we do this, and this is, this is what I'm going to really concentrate on in this talk, is, <clears throat> is to look into this subject of discontent and stress, to look into suffering. So <clears throat> the Buddha tells us time and again to reflect on 
this, this quality of dukkha, this quality of um, stressful, um, sometimes referred to unsatisfactory, uh, an unsatisfactory quality in life. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term dukkha, and I think most of you are, uh, the English translation is uh, suffering. But uh, <clears throat> this is the, there's a whole range that's involved. And <laughs> I love this term that appears in, throughout the, the suttas. Uh, when there's a reference to dukkha, it's uh, this gross suffering of it rolls off the tongue. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Has anyone ever experienced <laughs> sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair? So there's this quality of dukkha to, to, to mild irritation, impatience, disappointment. Things just aren't the way we want them to be. We want, to, we want something and we get something else and it's just, ah, why don't things work out? So from um, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair to I didn't get what I want. I, they weren't playing the movie I wanted. And, and then uh, also included in this experience of dukkha is this very subtle sense of being, wanting to be, wanting to become and investing our experience with this quality of self-reference, injecting a me, a my, a mine, into every thought and emotion and sensation that we have. And this injection of a sense of identity into a process of of what, in fact, is a process causes us to suffer. So when I say a process, every experience that we have, whether it's mental or physical, is a dynamic process. Every thought that we have is soon replaced by another thought, replaced by another thought. Every sensation is replaced by another sensation, every emotion by another emotion. So when we learn to look carefully we see the dynamic process of what's going on and when we invest it with a sense of me myself i etc we we and this is a, such a natural thing i i don't know many people who don't do this but um we we build this habit of self-identification and uh it's so easy to do it it's so natural to do it and, and we don't <clears throat> normally see how that causes us to suffer. So when we begin to practice and look at things with a little bit more perspective, we begin to see how this injection of self-identity into all of the things that we're experience, experiencing actually causes us pain and discontent. What is the term? Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. There it is. 
So <clears throat> it's really useful to understand the nuances of, of this quality of dukkha from the most coarse to the most subtle um, in the context of our own direct lived experience. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when we're actually experiencing something, we begin, whatever it happens to be, especially if it's causing us stress, since we're looking at dukkha here, is to learn to recognize and acknowledge that stress is present in our immediate momentary lived experience. And likewise, it's really useful for us in our practice to know what practice is appropriate to engage in any given moment of the recognition of suffering in order to let go of the dukkha and to relinquish the suffering. So sometimes... Oh, I've got it in my notes. Sometimes... It's the restraint of sila. Sometimes it's living really rooted in integrity, being true to our values and and, um, having the courage and the constancy to hold steady with what it is that we think is important. So living with a sense of composure and virtue gives us the stability to allow us to, um, that's, I'm saying that wrong, gives us the stability to antidote the dukkha that might be arising in that particular kind of, or that particular moment. So sometimes living from this place of integrity and recognizing that that's what we're doing and doing it purposely and consciously is all that's necessary in order to antidote the dukkha. Okay, that's one way. Other times we might be in a situation where where um, sense restraint is called for, and and in a in a situation like that we uh, we develop sharp and, and steady, continuous mindfulness so that we can see what's happening, so that we can see that um, if, if we decide that we want to um, uh, go off the deep end and do goofy things um, <clears throat> without recognizing what we're doing, um, we're going to suffer. And simply to stay very mindful of what it is, the, the, the desires that are arising within us, um, the wantings that, you know, if I don't get this thing that I want, I'm, my life is going to be very incomplete. So I pin my happiness on, on getting things that gratify me in some way. And then when I don't get that, so just seeing what it is that's driving us, that's motivating us, that's giving us this feeling of discontent, that sometimes is enough to antidote dukkha. 
Other times, developing concentration brings a steady, spacious quality that stabilizes and unifies the mind so that we can actually see into uh, what's going on uh, with greater clarity so that we can see suffering and, and in the seeing of suffering, we can let go of suffering. Okay? And at other times, it's appropriate and necessary to cultivate um, insight and wisdom, wisdom through the practice of actively investigating what's going on in our experience. So uh, we reflect, we, we, we question, we analyze, we use our mind's innate ability to discern and discriminate in order to see the presence of suffering, to see through suffering, and to not um, put filters between the suffering and ourselves so that we don't actually recognize what's happening. So when, when we're cultivating this quality of compassion, just as a little aside here, one of the things that's necessary in order to cultivate a steady and, and deep, profound compassion is the ability to see suffering and not to abandon ourselves or another person in the presence of suffering. So we learn to be with that which is difficult for longer and longer periods of time so that we don't, we're not frightened away by it when we feel a sense of vulnerability. So we can investigate what's true, what's really of value, and what leads to freedom as opposed to what takes us down the rabbit hole. And we can come to know the myriad ways in which we get hooked, in which we get caught time and time and time again. Now, uh, I said something here a couple of times, which I, I want to make sure I'm emphasizing. And that is, it might be different for other people, and it probably is, but for me, this, this quality or this, this ability to let go isn't something that um, I, I can consciously do. I can't like look at suffering and just say, okay, I'm going to let go of suffering. You see, I mean, I can't experience suffering and then just decide, okay, I'm going to let go of suffering and then hopefully everything will be fine. It's <clears throat> rather in the seeing the direct seeing and knowing of suffering itself that the release comes. I'm going to say that again because this is important. It's not that we're doing something actively other than recognizing what's actually true. And if we're looking at suffering and we see that we're suffering and we see what suffering leads to in our life, sometimes the seeing of suffering is all that it takes in order to let it go. We just can't hold on to suffering at a certain point. It hurts too much. Okay, I'm looking for 
nods of recognition here. This is a really important, this is really important. I, in my own experience, this was really important. So I really want to emphasize this because it takes the stress and the strain and the pressure of saying, well, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? You know, don't tell me to let go. Tell me how. So I can't tell you how to see suffering, but I can tell you it is in the seeing, in the direct seeing and knowing that you're suffering that the heart opens and, and there is this quality of release. Sometimes, sometimes that's not the case, but sometimes that is the case. And when that happens, there's an experience, I think, of freedom. Or this is a moment of real freedom when you let go, when you get this quality of letting go. There's this sense of freedom. And in order to meet suffering like that, you have, I'll go out on a limb and say it, you, you can only meet that suffering in that way when, when the heart is filled with compassion, when the heart opens with compassion. It's not easy to be with suffering. Now, perhaps if mindfulness was absolutely stable, and didn't wobble, you could look at something that was causing suffering and, and be able to stay with it. But for most people, our mindfulness isn't that stable. And, and that's not a problem. All you have to do is let the heart respond to suffering. And when, when love meets suffering, the heart's natural response is compassion. So that was important in my practice, and I wanted to um, uh, really emphasize that. So, um, so by cultivating wisdom in this kind of systematic way, we, we really can oftentimes neutralize and let go of the experience of suffering. This is a way that we can do it. So... We're practicing by looking at suffering here. This is one way of practicing. There's other ways of doing it, but that's what I'm emphasizing here. So sometimes we're even able to let go of the potential for suffering before it turns into a tsunami or a firestorm. So we can see that something's happening. And because we see it, before it it takes root or it actually... Um, you know, gets a good head of steam, we can, we see through it, see? And this seeing is very, it's just this quality of knowing. So if I asked you, do you know that you're alive? Most people would nod their head and say, yes, I know I'm alive, right? But do you tell yourself, oh, this is, I'm alive because I feel this, I breathe it, I'm breathing, I'm... No, you just know that you're alive. Do you know that you love? Yes, you do. You know that you love. You know this directly. You don't have to, you don't have to get a PhD and go to Stanford. All you have to do is trust yourself, you see? So, <clears throat> so what appears in our minds 
are really only perceptions of things according to their nature. And none of those things, whether they're happy things or difficult things, are worth holding on to. None of them. Because when we hold on, we suffer. So the Buddha's first and second noble truth is the first is that there is suffering in life, and the second is that there's a cause of suffering in life. And the cause of suffering is generally holding on, clinging, clinging to things that we want and clinging to not wanting things that we don't want. It's clinging, it's holding on. So we've all heard for time and again that, you know, if, if you pick up a hot coal, you know, it's going to burn your hand. So you don't hold on to it. You put it down as fast as possible. But the world doesn't teach us to put it down. The world teaches us that if we do certain things, that the, that the coal isn't going to be a problem and we can get what we want. Meanwhile, the, the, the hot coal is burning, burning, a, is burning us terribly. So when we begin to see like this, we see the truth that things are constantly changing. So we see into the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and uh, non-self. So we see the truth of impermanence, or in Pali the word is anicca, um, that things are constantly changing, and when we hold on to things that are constantly changing, we suffer. We see the truth of suffering, that what's impermanent and unstable is unsatisfactory, complicated, often painful, and therefore we suffer. And we also see into the truth of not-self or nata, uh, the Pali word, uh, that the things that we invest an identity in, whether it's an emotion or a thought or a belief system or a habitual mind, mind state, that these are basically just mental constructs. They are, and they arise and pass away, and they generally are, are not true. You know, we, we, we think about what's going to happen to us when we go on vacation or when we get that new job or when we find the perfect soulmate to be with and we make all these plans and these things almost never pan out the way that we think that they're going to pan out. So when we cling to things, whether they're plans or, or experiences, we're just going to suffer. And um, <clears throat> this is true of things in the external world uh, coming to us externally in, in relationships and in, in with people and things, as well as in our own internal experience with our perceptions, our thoughts, our emotions, and our ideas and our moods. All of this stuff, if we hold on to it, we suffer. So <laughs> learning to look at dukkha and recognize dukkha, learning to look at our suffering and recognize our suffering is a way that we begin to see into it, to see through it, and to actually allow ourselves to be released. 
That's the way I want to say it. I want to say it. We allow ourselves not to suffer anymore. We allow ourselves to let go. We don't hold on, we just let go. When, I, when I've done end-of-life work and I'm with people who are near the end of their life, you know, it's this... Um, you hold on and you suffer terribly, or you are at peace with the way things actually are. And, and then this letting go is a letting go of suffering and allowing of peace. We deserve peace. We deserve to be happy. You see? And so the way that we become happy is we let go of that which causes us to be unhappy. So what this means is that we need to see dukkha clearly in order to let go of it. That's the truth. There's no magic pill here. And seeing the nature of suffering clearly brings us to the point of really being ready to let it go. And as I said a little bit earlier, sometimes we just can't hold on to it any longer. Sometimes it's just too damn much. So sometimes we get to make a choice of letting go, and sometimes we don't. So... uh, and, and that's not a bad thing. When we don't get the choice, um, sometimes, even though it seems like this is a, a bad thing, it, it, it forces a kind of letting go. And there's, a, there's this awakening to release that can, that can be mind-blowing. So um, I have a long talk here. <laughs> I'm gonna, I've got five minutes, so let, let me move through this a little bit more. So, um, <clears throat> so, by constantly trying to manipulate our experience to find happiness and to get what we want, we we basically, we inadvertently create our own suffering. We don't allow ourselves the peace to simply meet what is as it is. We want it to be the way we want it to be. So, so when we begin to look at this this question of what this stress is, what this dukkha is, and how we deal with this dukkha, um, we see that we create our dukkha by pushing against our experience, by resisting what's actually happening in our experience. We don't resist all the time, and we don't suffer all the time. But when we do suffer, we're generally pushing against something. We, we want it to be different than it actually is. And, um, <clears throat> and when we do this, of course we end up going down the rabbit hole over and over and over again. And this is how we create the habit of suffering. 
and we just get used to it, and it becomes a normal way of being so that we don't really know any other way of being. We just think it's normal. And so we just grit our teeth and go through it, or we whine and complain and we're victims and we wallow in it, or you know, we each sort of do it in our own ways. But the bottom line is that we all suffer. This we share in common. We, there's not anybody in this room, I don't think, that doesn't know what it feels like to suffer in the way that I'm talking about. And it's, so through, it's, it's through cultivating these various um, meditative tools that we come to discover that it's actually through this a quality of dispassion, a quality of non-resistance, um, uh, of not striving to, to manipulate our experience, that we find release. We just see what causes us suffering, and we stop pushing against it. We just let, somehow, in the seeing, we, we see what we're doing. It's like if you went to a movie and you watched characters up on the screen doing it, you could see what they were doing, you see? But when it's us, we don't see it. But when we learn to see it and let go, then this comes through not resisting. And this this non-resistance to that which causes us displeasure is felt as dispassion. It's not like some, like, nothing makes any difference anymore and there's nothing you can do. It's that if things don't work out the way we want them to work out, okay. If things work out the way we want them to work out, okay. It's all okay some way or another. It's just all okay. So if things are painful, okay. If things aren't painful, great, okay. So letting things simply be the way that they are without manipulating them or needing to, or thinking that we need to change them in order to be happy, tying our happiness onto things being the way we want them to, this is a sure formula for suffering. So this quality of meeting our experience with dispassion of seeing through this uh, actually nourishes us. It brings us a kind of freedom from stress, the stress of, of, of holding on. So uh, when we meditate, when we do formal meditation practice and we learn to discipline our mind, we see that that things come into being, they become real, because we invest reality into them. We invest a sense of self into them. We breathe life into our emotions, into our thoughts, into our experiences. So the question is, can we just let things be the way they are? Can we learn to see and just let things be the way they are? The answer, since I don't have a lot of time, is... <laughs> that yes, we can. We can, le- <laughs> we, we, can learn, we can learn how to do this. And I'm not suggesting that it's easy. That's why they call it practice. But it can be learned. That is the good news. We can learn. And in order to learn, we have to be willing 
to be radically honest with ourselves. We have to be willing to screw up 10,000 times and not hate ourselves for the fact that we're not perfect. We have to allow ourselves to just be people, to just be human beings. We have to learn to treat ourselves like a good friend would treat us. We have to learn to be compassionate with ourselves. This is something that will free you. I, this is, and I'll happily go out on a limb. What does that guy from the men's warehouse say? I guarantee it. <laughs> I guarantee it. So, um, so I, I'm going to just say one more thing. These various practices that I've been talking about at a very high level, they all work together. And they work at different times in different situations. But they're not meant to be formulaic. They're not formulaic. They're simply tools to use. And what I want to leave you with here, there's a couple of things. One is that in the end, no one can tell us how to do this. You can't read a book and learn. A teacher can only point to things. You have to be willing to trust yourself, and you have to be willing to know that you can do it. And all you have to do is just be kind to yourself and get it a few times. And then you know, yes, I can do this. This, this, is, this can be done. This can be learned. Um, so the challenge that we have, that all of us have, is how to use our practice to let go of clinging. Now, having said all that, none of it sounds like it's very pleasant or easy. It is the way things are. So I have a poem that I, I want to finish with that's hopeful. And it's one of my favorite poems. And it's called uh, Dear Human. Some of you may know it. Uh, it was penned by a woman named Courtney Walsh. And it goes like this. Dear human, you've got it all wrong. You didn't come here to master unconditional love. That is where you came from and where you'll return. You came here to learn personal love, universal love, messy love, sweaty love, crazy love, broken love, whole love. Infused with divinity, lived through the grace of stumbling, demonstrated through the beauty of messing up, often. You didn't come here to be perfect. You already are. You came here to be gloriously human, flawed and fabulous, and then to rise again into remembering. But unconditional love? Stop telling that story. Love in truth doesn't need any other adjectives. It doesn't require modifiers. It doesn't require the condition of perfection. It only asks that you show up and do your best. That you stay present and that you feel fully. That you shine and fly and laugh and cry and hurt and heal and fall and get back up and play and work and live and die as you. It's enough.
it's plenty. So thank you very much.